Bye, community friends, and welcome to episode 150. I can't believe we're at 150, to be honest. Um, we were just talking about what we were at last year, and it was about 84. And I remember celebrating episode 100 in around April, and um, which is when we did the last Ask Zoe Anything, which doesn't seem that long ago, but it really was. And a lot has happened since then. <laughs> yes. A lot has happened since then and uh, 2020, well, it's 2020 now when this goes to air, will just be a huge year. I mean, 2019 was pretty massive, let's be honest. So I'm really excited to get into this. Um, We're going to do another episode of Ask Zoe Anything. So thank you, everybody, for putting your questions on to LinkedIn and sending me messages. Um, We'll see how many we get through. I think last time we didn't get through everything and I promised to do another one, um, which I didn't do. But anyway. Well, we're doing it now. And, we're doing you know, it now. Pretty much you've been overseas since then. So <laughs> not quite, but you've had a pretty full year. It's been pretty full. Um, but if anyone else has any questions they want to ask, we can um, yeah, just email them through and maybe we can do another one of these mm. very soon. Okay, so today we're asking Zoe anything. My amazing podcast producer, Ellen Ronald Keane, is going to be behind the other microphone today asking the questions. So over to you, Ellen. Thank you, Zoe. So the first question that we have uh, comes, and so by the way, people, these were questions that people sent through on LinkedIn. So if you're not following Zoe on LinkedIn and uh, my smart community on LinkedIn, which is smartcomhq, two Ms, um, then you should be because that's how you can get your question onto the podcast. Uh, So the first question comes from Terry Lee Williams and Terry asks, has anyone who has invested in a particular smart city scheme or project measured the real direct financial benefits in savings? And this is such an important question. Zoe. Yes, this is a smart question, I think, because we often talk about smart communities just being for the greater good. So that kind of utopian um, mindset of, you know, livability and things are going to be great. And livability is a huge part of smart cities and smart communities. But I also believe that being able to reduce operational costs, particularly um, at a local government level and state government level, or at least being able to measure how we're doing. So how we're doing a lot more with the same amount of dollars or or less money. I think that's really, really important. because in turn, that actually helps the greater good because we're not wasting money on stuff just because, you know, it's an old admin process and, um, you know, instead of, um, you know, utilising somebody's time or for creativity and curiosity and making things better, we're, we're essentially wasting time on really mundane tasks that um, could be automated or could be done more efficiently or do they even need to be done at all? And I think this is really important because it's it's no longer good enough to be wasting money just because we couldn't change our process or keep up to date or change the way we're thinking. Um, I think that's really important in this space. 
Now, I don't have an exact number for a specific council, but what I've decided to do after this podcast is get more councils on the podcast to talk about this stuff. And I know that, you know, so Morton Bay Regional Council, which was um, recently James Pete was on the podcast, uh, he, he definitely is measuring and monitoring this stuff. Um, and I know that they're looking for those return on investment um, or those reduced uh, operational costs. That's part of the mandate for, for them um, in particular. And back in August, we had Matt from Ipswich and Marissa um, from George Rivers Council. We also had Sean Ordain from Wellington and Emily Royale from San Antonio. I know that these, these guys and gals will be measuring and monitoring things because it's very important, but it really depends where the focus is because I was thinking about this question and if the focus for the smart city where it's sitting is say, in economic development, they might not necessarily be focused on reducing operational costs. They're focusing on the community and increasing, you know, wealth in the community and economic development, you know, those type of things and community building and stuff like that, which are all very important. But if the smart city um, programs and things are sitting in, say, maintenance or, um, you know, infrastructure or even, you know, the IT department, then they'll be focused on different things and measuring different things and actually looking at, okay, well, how, do we, like, is, is one of the KPIs or one of the objectives to actually reduce that operational cost? So I think for each council, it's something to consider and something to really ask ourselves, what do we actually want to see from these programs? Not just, um, you know, community benefits and they're really, really important um, you know, the most important. But then if we are looking to reduce those operational costs so then we can get more community be benefit, we have to really put these things in place and focus on them to measure and monitor. And when I've been looking at this, the, the, like, the key obviously is to put those things in place before we actually start the program. So then, you know, if we don't have a good idea of what costs are now, I mean... We know that there's costs and things and this happens and this cost system out and we have this in wages or whatever. But if we don't have that baseline of like, well, once we change this, this is the direct cost for this activity right now. And then once we move, this will be the direct cost for that activity. Or And I think there's lots of talk about potential, um, which is what Terry uh, talks about. And I, I know Terry very well, but there's lots of, you know, oh, well, X amount of dollars will be saved if, you know, we we do these things. So I think... From a direct cost perspective um, for councils, it'll be different based on their focus. And I think we still need to measure and monitor. If it is economic development, how do we measure and monitor that? Obviously, it's going to be a long-time thing or a longer-term thing. And that's what Matt says in his episode, um, which is I think a lot of people are still trying to understand what is the return on investment of smart communities. Some people are trying to look for quick wins. Um, it's going to be difficult to obtain those big return on investments for quick wins um, because this is such a long-term transition. So that's what um, Matt says from Ipswich City Council. And I think that's so true, but I also feel like we can measure and monitor these things because we should be able to get direct savings over a, a shorter period of time. I don't think we need to wait 10 or 20 years. We'll, we'll be able to continue to measure and monitor those things and Hopefully, you know, we are getting those direct benefits. But I think over the short term, we can definitely look at those direct savings, but only if we set up the measuring and monitoring at, at the get-go. 
Yes, and it seems to me to um, take us back to that question that you always ask, which is, um, you know, integration and and breaking down the silos. Because if the smart city department sits in one silo, and therefore that means they only measure certain financial uh, metrics compared to if they were in a different department of the council, obviously breaking down those silos is a good thing to try and get that measurement more widespread of, of more different metrics. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. And I also feel like a lot of the time, and because of the, the integration's not there, even if we have savings in certain areas, they might just get absorbed um, because we're, we've, we've improved the quality of the service. And I don't think that should be undervalued, but we do need to say what it is, if that makes sense. We need to make it explicit because like, um, like I was saying before, we need to be able to measure what we're doing with the same amount of money. Now we're able to do more and whether that's a direct like um, quantity, but a lot of the time it won't be, it will be a quality. Um, so we'll be able to increase or improve the, um, I don't know, the quality of the roads or the, you know, the service of the bin pickup or something like that, or those, those economic development um, metrics as well like oh we'll increase the the gdp by blah blah whatever but i don't know how we can actually do those things um directly and i think we need to really account for that as well that we need to that's where the yeah the measuring and monitoring i know i keep banging on about that but that's where it's really important because if we don't do that then yes we won't be able to actually say well yes we've made this direct impact but i did do a little bit of um digging and had a bit of a listen back to some of the episodes and I was looking at um, episode one, well, listening to episode 124, which was Sean Ordain from Wellington. And I asked him um, about the uh, digital twin. So they're talking about um, having a digital twin or they are, they have a digital twin in development um, for Wellington City Council and or Wellington City. And I, I asked him directly, I was like, oh, you know, you're talking about these projects that you're doing. What What is the return on investment that you've seen? And again, they're at the kind of, the beginning phase, um, but being able to use um, so building information modeling BIM, so being able to have that 3D model, is one of the kind of mandates um, from from my understanding of because they're building that digital twin. All the development applications and things have to be in the, that 3D model, or they're able to, you know, if they're building a new building um, or a library, it has to be in that 3D model, so then they can show people in you know 3D aspect of how what that building will actually look like. And so he said that that's um, the consideration time for people looking at that building that have to make decisions about that building is about half of what it would be if it was on paper um, for this particular project. Um, so that's definitely saving money um, because, you know, you're not having those lengthy periods of time where you've got people, you know, people's hours um, racking up because we're considering this or we're doing that or we're changing this or we're changing that. Maybe we're changing things several times because, oh, well, we thought it would look like this, but actually it looked like that. And also um, with construction, when you, when you have something on paper, it's, you know, not that hard to change a line here or there. But when you've physically built it, if you're moving beams and doing things like that, obviously that's a, a, a much larger cost. So he's um, so basically they're continuing to measure and monitor this. So there's definitely some savings there um, that will, will that will come out um, once they once they have a few more projects. So he was talking about a project by pro- project basis, um, and 
another conversation I've been having um, with um, a local council is look, starting to look at the reduced costs when we've when we're connecting devices and plant um, together and infrastructure together. So um, you know the this council has. Uh, a number of devices in their plant already. They've upgraded a certain um, system, um, but they've, they're only using a certain amount of capability at the moment. Uh, but if they were able to monitor where um, people are going, and you know all the all the um, all the the features of that plant, so that asset. So you know, looking at the the fuel. Um, how we're, you know, could it be more efficient? Um, is there, you know, a servicing issue? Like, you know, are we using more than we thought we would and those type of things? If you actually identify those things early, there has to be some savings after that as well. So they're, again, only at the very beginning and looking at what they can actually use this um, capability for. And then they'll continue to measure and monitor that um, to, to, you know, actually show those savings mm. uh, as well or, or realise those savings. Um, the other one was Chris Castro in episode 13 way back in the day. Way back when. Um, so they took a really, uh, they've taken a sustainability focus to smart cities. So one of his quotes was about, um, you know, bringing the nexus of bringing um, sustainable development and uh, technology together to form smart cities, something like that. So basically uh, they have... I, I was reading the um, paper from earlier. I think it was um, a la last year, um, a report, um, and they talk about you know two point two million dollars US dollars in savings from energy efficiencies. Um, so the initiatives, so setting up um, LED lighting and, and smart light lighting, that kind of thing. Um, and they also talk. They don't have numbers here, but uh, that they've saved city money on improving efficiencies um, by making um, smart using smart bin sensors or dumpster sensors um, they call but yeah bin sensors so real-time monitoring of commercial bins um, saving businesses money on collection so that's a saving I guess from the business perspective and then it says saving city money um, for improving efficiencies don't have numbers there but that was in their report uh, and then the next one I was looking at was in Barcelona. Um, so Joaquim Alvarez uh, was on the podcast um, not too long ago. Yes, so Joaquin was early in 2019. Yes. His episode. Um, not that he talked about direct costs uh, specifically, but I, um, I had a bit of a look and according to, there's a couple of different stats, I guess, um, different articles on the same thing, but um, giving different numbers. So it, again, we need to talk to the cities directly to find out what exactly the numbers would be. But smart street light centres, um, so not only incorporating new like LED technology to reduce consumption, they also detect when a pedestrian isn't around, so they then reduce the lighting and then go up again once they sense a pedestrian. So they've talked about 30% uh, energy savings, which accounts uh, for a saving of uh, 37 million euros each year, apparently. Uh, and then another one here is on uh, a recent Smart City World Report ranked Barcelona in third place of the world's smart cities behind Singapore and London. So the study said that smart city programs um, put in place contributed to creating 47,000 new jobs, which are, it's not a saving, but it's that economic development um, and you know uh, jobs 
uh, and then resulted in 42.5 million euros in savings on water management and 36.5 million euros in savings created from smart parking. So that's pretty interesting. So that would be, you know, water management, obviously reducing um, water uh, leaks, using it more efficiently. And then smart parking would be, um, I guess, <laughs> increasing enforcement revenue potentially, um, but also then I imagine reducing congestion, uh, those type of things as well. So I, I just have a couple more stats here on water water management. Uh, so this is also from Barcelona, um, a different article. And we'll put the links to these articles in the show notes because I have them all. Because um, water was a, was a huge focus. Uh, then, yeah, we've got like it also says that we've got 25% savings in water use based on a series of sensors in parks and public fountains to monitor the level of irrigation and water use based on humidity and rainfall um, to an, in order to reduce waste. So I think that's a really key component. Um, and I think water, like the other night when we were uh, at um, Canvas Co-working uh, Christmas party, you know, that was, a, that was a big topic. So I think water is one of the ones that we should, we should be focusing on a lot more. Even if it seems like a small saving, it all adds up, um, particularly on a larger scale if we're talking about a council or, um, you know, a full area. So I think water is definitely a key one. And, you know, we had, we've had a lot of people talk about water. So had Frank Burns way back in the day. We had um, Abel Imaraj. And I think it was Frank. He talked a lot about just reducing waste. And it's not super hard it's it's actually and a lot of the time yes technology is there so then we are aware and then we can you know turn things on and off but we're aware of um, how much water we're using and that type of thing but um just you know not using water if we don't need to like use a broom instead of hosing out the floor or whatever um which you know pretty basic stuff but from an individual perspective, it might not seem a lot, but once you scale that over a whole business or a whole council, it, it really, really adds up. So yeah, I think there's some stuff there. Uh, and then I've just got one more, which is from Charlotte in South Carolina. So just going to start here, um, looking at uh, save 10 million US dollars since 2011 by reducing the city's power usage by nearly 10%. So this was a partnership that they had, um, which leverage data collection um, and learning opportunities and also community education. Uh, so it was able to save the council, yeah, 10 million since 2011. So, yeah, I think there's there's a few stats there, but um, I would love to get some more really kind of um, granular information from councils. But I also feel like they there needs to be a safe space for councils to actually have these meaningful conversations like you know and potentially without me without anyone um other than other councils um so i think that's really important that you know we might not know the exact savings um i think it is important for transparency um i i think we 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 want to continue to open up these um you know these data sets i i guess is what they are um but look at uh, what the savings could be so then other councils can learn and other businesses can learn and um, then we can start having these real conversations about well um, yes this this part of it costs me more but in the long run it saved me this or maybe maybe it is well this just costs more now but we get a better service um, or whatever and I also think there's opportunity to make money looking at different business models for councils you know if they own 
I say, um, you know, a network, um, they can look at um, the spare capacity or if they own structures, you know, renting out those spaces and structures and um, for equipment and that type of thing as well. So it's not just necessarily the savings. I think they're really important, the operational costs, but looking at where we can change business models or leverage new business models is, is really key as well. Mm. So there are people measuring it um, and presumably more and more of that data will become available in the coming years because some of this is a long-term, as Matt Schultz was saying in that episode, this is a long-term game. And so thanks for sharing some of those stats and we will put all those links in the show notes. So if you want to go and look up those um, various, you know, city initiatives, uh, people can do that and read a bit more about it for themselves. Mm. And I'd also encourage anyone that, um, you know, is working for a local council or is, you know, state government or, or, you know, has these numbers to hit me up and let me know and let's have a chat about it because I would, I think it's a really important, um, it's a really important topic that we need to continue to talk about more Um, because what I have also realised in like increasing maturity of this smart city space is that when we when we can actually show numbers we can get the engineers and the finances and the accountants in the room um not just people that have you know vision um, which is really important but actually we need the real um practical pragmatic people and i guess we need to have those steps taken as well um that implementation phase is you know it could be the best thing um, you know, the world has ever seen, but it, it, it all has to be sustainable. And I, I mean, environmentally, you know, people as well, but I also mean the business model needs to be sustainable. And obviously a business model for a local government is, is different to a private sector. Um, you know, it's for public good, but what is it that we need to actually be providing and what are the limitations? And a mayor said to me once that I was talking to him about smart cities and you know, we've got increasing customer expectations and then decreasing revenue or decreasing resources. And so that smart bit for me is the bit in the middle. Um, and whether it's increasing customer expectations or just different customer expectations doesn't really matter, but there is going to be this gap where we, where we, the government won't be able to serve um, as, as is expected by the community. Uh, and I think that's a really, you know, that might just seem like, oh, well, um, would have to change their expectations. Um, I think there's a, a limited amount of, you know, of that, but there's also this, um, I guess, understanding the why is really important. And I think we are going to, you know, we're, we're, we're faced with um, a lot of, you know, decreasing trust in government on a global scale. What, are, what is that actually going to um manifest into in the future and yeah so I think this is really this is a really important um concept so we we can't just brush it off to the side and just oh we'll just keep doing the way you know Mm. what we've done because we won't be able to anymore yeah well that leads really nicely onto this next question so Chris Cooper who was on the show in episode 92 so back in the beginning, of, you know, early part of 2019 as well, that's episode 92, we'll link it in the show notes. Chris Cooper has actually asked about that relationship between uh, the political class and citizens and open data. So when we're talking about, you know, getting, like you said, if, if we've got some real stats on the 
return on investment of these smart city initiatives that actually gets you know the accountants and the the different people in the room um so chris's question is do you know of any places that are changing the political discourse between citizens and decision makers and using open data to change opinions and shift measurements of what good looks like um and chris makes the point that at the moment the data is not necessarily trusted and therefore it's not actively used in decision making but it would make places really smart (laughs) so are there any places that you know of that are changing the political discourse between the citizens and the decision makers with you know open data being used to change those opinions this is a great question and I think that um the way that I read it was like how do we get people to I guess in the political sense as well but also um like people in the community to access, you know, when we do open up the data, what are people, how can people actually do something with that? Um, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about before to make it real um, because it's all well and good to say, oh, yeah, we've got all this data or whatever, but we're not actually using it. You know, if we're not getting information out of this data, um, then, then we've got a problem. I do think that uh, we need more like programs to show how this is done and how to access it. You know, people are doing hackathons um, with open data and that might be the first time that people actually know that um, we have access to open data, um, which is which is important. And also, um, I think bringing these programs to younger people as well, to un- so then they're coming through knowing that, um, you know, that we've got access to this, a level of data depending on what databases and what's open there's a level of data literacy right in in the community that is currently not not there yeah yeah so increasing that data literacy I think is really important and um we're talking about data and then we're also talking about um you know sorry we're talking about like tech and digital literacy but yes then there's this data element and I think it'll it'll be funny or be interesting when you know the younger generation are coming through. They already know that they've got access to all this data, what conversations they're going to have when they get into, say, um, you know, a large corporate or a government agency or whatever, and we're not using that data. They'll be like, why are we not doing this? Um, and I also think that it's not just, it's not up to, well, it can't be just up to the people that are at the boardroom table Um because we know that we need more diversity at boardroom tables and so we don't have that digital diversity as Andrew Grill um, talks about. So people not understanding and it's, and again, it's not you and I that need to sit there. We need, we need data analysts and data scientists, the people that are living and breathing this stuff and knowing what you can and can't do with the data as well is really important. And I think once we are able to show some of these things and increase our data literacy overall, then we can have better conversations about it. Because at the moment, you know, we've got this kind of polarisation happening um, around the world about, well, you know, if your views are like this, then, you know, you you don't care about this. Or, you know, if you're the other way, then you're an extremist. These type of things happening. But if we're actually looking at the data together and we bo- we're understanding what that actually looks like, because the other thing is that is we can manipulate data um, yeah. very easily. Um, Absolutely. But if we, if we have enough people understanding what it is, we are able to write, uh, I'm sorry, we're able to ask the right questions about what we've done or what we haven't done or what we're using, what we're not using. I think the other thing also is that 
if we continue to increase our data literacy, we'll continue to increase our privacy um, literacy or fluency or whatever we're going to call it. Um, because I think once we know how much data is actually available on us, how much personally identifiable data is available on us and what we can access, we'll start having some, again, better questions. Uh, and I don't think it needs to be like an... I don't know, like a, an uproar or whatever, but it's just about informing us and empowering us to actually, you know, bring those, those questions to the forefront with, and, and we know what a good answer is as well. It, we don't know the answer, but we know what a good answer is, which is actually answering the real question and not, you know, just, oh, leave it to us. We're, we're you know, we've got your back here. That requires people to know that there's a question to be asked in the first place, right? Because I think that's the, the place that we are with privacy at the moment, which is that a lot of people don't know that they even should be. Only recently have people started realising that they actually should be asking, oh, well, how is this, you know, company that I've just given all my information yes. to, how are they using that data? Where is it stored? And all of those other questions. I don't even think that it's a question that should be asked. So, mm. yeah, it is that fluency, I guess, to know that there's a question in the first place. Yeah, and it's even forbidden. Like it's actually forbidden to be asked. It's a taboo. Like don't don't ask those things. Um, and it's and that's where I think that's where I think it's wrong. And where we need to. That's why you know in this smart community space, it needs to be diverse and inclusive. And that means that we're all able to ask these questions, because you know we have a right to know. But also, it doesn't mean we're going to do anything different. Yeah. You know, and, and that's fine, but it's actually understanding, okay, well, what does this mean for me? It's like when you, you know, if you're taking, if you're getting a mortgage on your house or insurance, for example, you know, we don't ask these questions until we actually need to know, which is when something happens and then we go, oh, actually, I wasn't covered for that or this or whatever, because we think that we should just trust the other, you know, the other entity to, to have our best interests at heart. And, you know, they don't, they have their best interests at heart. And they're not necessarily um, opposing, but we need to know because then we can actually make a choice about it. And I think there's a lot of conversation about people not wanting choice, but people want choice when, you know, shit hits the fan, right? They wanted, they wanted to be able to know, okay, well, like insurance, for example, like if I had something taken from my house, I want to know if I leave my window open, am I still covered? And that's a question we need to ask. And if the answer is no, we might make the same decision. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to close and lock my windows now. But if it's no, you're not covered, but actually there's another level of cover that's, you know, X amount more that, you know, if you leave your window open, you're still covered. I might go, okay, cool. Actually, yep, I'd like to choose that because, you know, that's how I live my life. Yeah, exactly. It's not necessarily that by asking this question where therefore they're not going to go ahead with whatever the thing is, it's just knowing the risks and then being able to make that decision for yourself, whether or not you want to take that risk, or as you said, whether or not you want to take that higher level of policy because of your situation. So it, it's just knowing. And, and I think, you know, you said people don't want, there's a conversation around that people don't want choice. Well, I think they get overwhelmed when they don't understand enough to be able to make a choice. Yes. Yes. And it's also confusing. Yeah. We want a very simple choice. And I think a confused mind will opt out. Yeah. If they're allowed to. Exactly. And, and yeah, I think that's really important. I don't know if that's answered um, Chris's question at all. Probably hasn't, but I do think there's a bigger conversation that needs to be had. And, and um, again, at Toowoomba, when we were talking, you know, it did come back to politics and how do we get people to listen? And I don't think there's, you know, there's not a simple answer, but 
um, as I said there, it was about persistence, consistency and, and being deliberate um, because we movements happen, right, but they don't happen overnight. Um, so we just need to continue to be involved in the conversation. Now, I had a bit of a look around and thinking back to some of the episodes we did, I think you know, Amsterdam Smart City has, you know, quite an active uh, community in this space. And so looking at how they're using data is, is, is something we could do. Um, Palo Alto, which is Jonathan Reichenthal, they have um, a lot of open data as well. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, one of the tech capital of the world, um, but we can still learn from them, right? Um, it's a different demographic, um, but we can still learn from some of the things that they have done. So Jonathan uh, Reichenthal was back in episode 77 to have a listen to to um, what he was talking about. And then he also has a lot of information, um, you know, he's got, in which I, um, one of the other questions was, how do we learn more? Um, he's got a number of series uh, uh, coming out and, and available now on, on Linda. And I've just read that he's putting out a book, Smart Cities for Dummies, which oh, sweet! I just read that on his website last night when I was doing a bit of research. Um, but yeah, so open data. And New South Wales actually opened up a lot of data. Um, Queensland, uh, I'm not sure if data sets are available. But what I do know is that consultants use whatever data is available right now, and they're not necessarily using it to um, make a new app or, you know, I don't know, join two data sources together that, you know, to make some great thing or something like that but they're using it because it's necessary and you know because we have to make decisions we're making decisions all the time whether it's data or whether it's uh, incomplete data or whether it's assumption um, and I think that's a really key I think people are like oh well what if we have too much information we don't want to know like you know we don't want to like isn't it better to be in the dark about these things so we can just kind of keep going the way we're going and I think that's an approach but I think it's possibly an irresponsible approach because we're not just talking about you know URI that we're, we're doing okay but people with the most at stake we owe it to people to actually use the most available or the 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 richest data sets that we have and so I think the digital diversity is really important in decision making and that includes um, at the political level as well um, and I think if we can get more, and it's not necessarily young people, but I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a... Data literate people. It's data literate people, exactly. Um, and so I'd just like to read this quote from Armin Ra Masariki, who was the chief analytics officer of the mayor's office at New York City. Democracies provide pathways for citizens to engage with their government. Data, and particularly open data, makes those pathways far more salient and powerful. That's the role of government in terms of using open data as a mechanism for providing a tool for citizens to be more thoughtful, be smarter, and be able to engage in a more impactful way. So I really like that quote because it puts it back to, well, why are we doing this? Well, it's for the citizens. And as, as politicians or in that um, political sense, we're, we're supposed to be doing it all for the citizens. So I think it's about morphing and changing that conversation to what what is the like what is the point of having all this data if we're not using it to make informed decisions for the public good and that doesn't really answer the question because it's a really hard one because we're in a we're in these times that are very uncertain and that um we can't we can't even predict how like 
you know, things that are like votes that are going to be certainly this way go the complete opposite. And I think the more we can use data, and I think the stories are also important. Um, so what are the perceived uh, gaps? Because once we understand those, and that's where I think the polarisation doesn't help um, in our community, because at the moment, you know, we can't even talk to somebody who has an opposing view to us. Because, we, you know, if we put that on Facebook, then, you know, you've got all these things happening and, you know. We're either in an echo chamber where yes. you only get people who agree with you or you get shouted down with, you know, vitriol that is actually not real helpful conversation. It's just people yelling at you because they disagree and sometimes making very personal, you know, attacks because they yes. disagree with your quote-unquote alternative fact. <laughs> Yes, and I think that's that's why why and a lot of these stories that we tell ourselves, um, you know, are just stories. But then we've got fact that we need to merge into these stories. And and I just think that if we can stop completely attacking somebody because they have an alternative view, and maybe it's because they've got their facts incorrect. Um, maybe that's that's the thing. But if we can't actually have a conversation about it, we can't look at those connections, um, you know, we won't be able to move forward because we're just going to continue to be fighting and arguing um, when sometimes we're actually wanting the same thing, but we've come at it from completely different viewpoints. And so we think that we want completely opposite. But when you actually are able to have those conversations, you have to leave your ego, judgment, all those things at the door then we can start having better conversations and smarter conversations. Well, it's different levels of literacy. Like I think that issue of polarisation goes back to different levels of literacy in the first place. Like you were talking about how data can be manipulated and and if if you are data literate, you know the right questions to ask to be able to actually just assess the the validity of the data or, or where there might be gaps. I think that goes back even further, you know, as an educator myself, like when we're actually teaching these days, when we teach kids literacy, critical literacy comes into it, which is about, you know, evaluating your sources. And, and I think there's a piece of that that's really missing in the, in the broader population that that level of critical literacy is missing, which has then been, fueled by the you know the echo chambers of various pockets of the internet and things like that yeah I agree and because the you know the algorithms push things that are going to get clicks and mundane regular stuff that might be you know true and great don't get clicks and that's one of a really big issue um and something I was talking to Debbie Reynolds about uh yesterday um which is some people only get all of their news from social media yeah and lots like, of people I lots think. of people lots of people that's true lots of people and so what does that do to a society that is only ever being well uh, all of it is just so we're going to be outraged we're either going to be outraged because one thing that we totally agree with everyone's commenting to say that oh well you know the opposite of that so we're going to be outraged for that or there's some uh, an article that we, we personally will be outraged about so we're continuing to be outraged all of the time. We're angry all of the time. And I just I just don't feel like that is a nice way to live. Well, and there's a, a lack of the fact-checking and stuff that happens in, you know, any kind of um, media outlet should be fact-checking. Obviously, we know there's bias in various media outlets, but the, the, the process of journalism has a certain level of checks and balances that 
old mate posting on Facebook doesn't have. <laughs> um, and also I think that goes when you're talking about citizens using data to be able to make better decisions in their lives. Like uh, I think a good example of that is just the weather report, right? That's, that's data that most people now will decide, are we going to have our barbecue that day or that other day? What's the weather going to be? You know, are we going to hold that event? inside or outside what's the weather going to be we just check that because that's just something that is so commonplace now but you know a couple hundred years ago that wasn't a thing a hundred years ago um that that piece of data that just helps us make better decisions on a day-to-day basis and that's very commonplace to most of us now so we don't even think of it as a, a data set but what other data could there be that would be helping us make better decisions day-to-day you know, as Chris Cooper makes this point, we're not using it because we don't necessarily trust it. um, And therefore, the decisions are not necessarily being made. Mm -hmm. I think trust is really important, um, obviously, but it's something that we need to, like, how do we, how do we change that? How do we get people to trust the data? Um, And it's no that's a big question and not a um, specific answer, but I do think it's about having more conversations and getting people literate um, so that we can actually understand. And, and what, what happens when we, you know, um, I was talking to Joy Taylor um, yesterday as well. And I was thinking about the conversation I had with Emily um, Royale uh, from San Antonio about Coded Dojo. So getting kids to, you know, use, um, coding and and uh, they they learn these things, but it's also about communication. And so, how do we communicate? So then, well, maybe they can educate their parents on well, this is how this thing works, mum. You know, so um, we can actually understand how things work. So then we can understand what the limitations are, but then we can also understand well, if I can do this and it does, you know, a. What if I do this other thing and maybe it can do b? And so you can actually make those. Um, really small tweaks that could actually change the way we work with things. But you can only do that if you actually understand what it is that the technology is doing. But on the other side of that, that communication aspect, so then you have to tell somebody about it um, because, uh, you know, it's, it's all well and good for me to be able to code this uh, little, you know, robot or whatever. But if I can't communicate to say, oh, well, then I did this and then I did this and this actually worked, but this didn't and I tried these things, then we can't share our learnings and our failures and our knowledge. But then further to that, once we start looking at, okay, well, maybe we're coding a little robot, but actually could we code something that is using an open data, um, an open data set or um, open data in general? Um, So maybe we could do something then with partnership with the uh, local council, um, which is what Emily talked about, that they were able to use, um, they made a parks app or whatever, and I'm not exactly sure what it does but if we were able to then use data because then you get kids actually thinking about the 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 information that's available and the data that's available um and then being able to use it and and help councils then um to be able to start thinking like that as well because we know that councils are not um just it's not that they don't know that they have all this information it's just a matter of resources and um understanding and skill sets it's not that they don't want to uh, I, I, I fully believe that councils are there and the people that work for councils are there because they want to be a public service. And I think it's just about a matter of understanding and skill sets and resources. And if we can use SMART to help them do the, some of those things. Um, and I think those partnerships are really key with younger people 
um, in you know schools and, and that type of thing as well. But these other external programs. Because so I was talking to Joy about this, it's like, well, Coda Dojo now is an extracurricular activity for kids. So instead of you know maybe maybe not instead of, but including you know dancing or music or um, you know sports or something like that as well. It's it's just as legitimate to be able to learn a new skill and code and communicate and build that social fabric, um, which you might not have got because you uh, you were sitting at home playing computer games because that's what you love to do. But actually, can you then translate some of those skills to the real world? Um, and I'm really excited for that um, because I think we're going to see a wave of very, very smart um, um, younger people that are coming through with this knowledge. And I don't mean smart as in like, you know, they're, they have to be maths or science or whatever. We're going to have these these kids that are, you know, literate in, in data and tech, but only if we make conscious decisions to actually do that as well. Like it doesn't just happen um, because otherwise we might go down the other way where we're not literate at all. We've got all this data and tech and we're just using it and we're, we're thinking it's all fine. Um, but we, we, that's where we need to actually build it into the real world. And it's just like, well, actually you're able to get this information. How does that make you feel? Um, and what are you like actually feeling what it, what it's like to, um, I guess, absorb and use and manipulate data. That's actually about people is really important as well. And I don't think that open data is, you know, uh, the opposite of privacy. It's like, uh, I was talking to some, I think it was Jack Barton. I asked this question. Um, you know, it, it's different data, right? And I think Nicole Stevenson would say the same thing. Um, it's actually about, you know, ensuring that privacy is front of mind. So then we can actually open up the data so then we can use the, the things that are really useful. So I think I've talked a lot about that. but And I, I just wanted to say, so you've mentioned Joy and also Debbie. And so those are um, interviews that are coming up in the early part of 2020. So you've kind of uh, just giving everybody a little bit of a teaser, but stay tuned for those episodes. <laughs> yes, they're very exciting episodes. And um, just quickly, I was going to suggest checking out B Smart City City Profiles. That was something I started doing and um, went down some rabbit holes. Uh, talk, they talk about um, their open data um, policies and um, programs and things. So that's, that's really good. There's lots of cities on there. Barcelona is another one um, that has open data and, and definitely they talk a lot about that. And actually I thought of you when I was reading this, Ellen, that they're doing training sessions for teachers that are how to actually use that data in their teaching um, as well. So data processing with spreadsheets and visualisation, they've got, um, they're teaching teachers how to use some of these tools, um, which is really interesting because uh, some of the projects with their students will involve this open data. So actually giving teachers some skills as well is really important. And so I thought that was really um, a nice um, article from, that was from Barcelona. Um, and then I just got some lists here of like data.gov, which is a USA initiative, um, which has um, free public access to 190,000 data sets and public engagement is encouraged by providing tools for web and app development and that type of thing. Um, then we've got uh, from France and Sweden and um, Clue My City, which is Indonesia. It was from Indonesia. And that really sparked my interest because I met these um, the, the team at Clue when I was in Indonesia. So they're using um, a map-based app that allows citizens to send uh, location-based complaints. So if you're like in a place, and I know a lot of places have this as well, but it seems like this, um, one is is working directly with local um, government for analysis and follow up. So, I, and again, I don't have any um, 
uh, affiliations with with the company or anything like that. But um, when they were talking about it, it seemed to be really making a difference and they were measuring and monitoring some of the um, impacts, the savings that they had in, in, in the space as well, which was really important. So rather than having to send somebody out, they would monitor based on citizens, you know, heat mapping the priorities and that type of thing. So, yeah, that, that was really interesting. And then using the other data sets um, with this citizen, now that we're creating a new data set, essentially, and then actually um, what what do they look like together and, and, you know, can you then link that to asset um, degradation and, and faults and defects and, and all those type of things. So, yeah, those were just some of the things I was uh, looking at. And I was also looking at um, March 7th, 2020 is Open Data Day. Yeah. Well, we might so, yeah. have to keep that in mind. So anyway, that's all my thoughts about open data. Well, not all of them. I continue to have more and more every day. <laughs> well, we can uh, revisit this topic, I think, in 2020. It's a big one. So I think we probably only have time for one last question, and I'm going to uh, choose Kerry Miles's question, which is, what are the characteristics of the smart city? Is it just a utopian concept? And, you know, if it isn't just a utopian concept, um, what are the top five things that make a city smart? Yes, I love this question. And I know Kerry got some other engagement on the post as well with some links and things. So I won't mention those because um, um, Kerry can click away and other people can click away and find those. But um, one of the big things uh, that I've been working on, which I haven't really released yet, is these workshop um you know, cards that have quotes from the podcast so people can engage in the smart community conversation without having to know anything about technology. So on the cards, they're quotes from my amazing guests on the podcast. Um, so things like privacy, um, we've got data, we've got accessibility. Um, and so what we do in these workshop settings is actually choose uh, three cards that resonate with you or, you know, have a many depending on the group size and timing and all that kind of stuff. And then we actually start talking about those so we can start having conversations, smart community conversations, without feeling like we have to know everything about technology or anything about technology. So we'll go to those um, because I think this is why I made them. And the, the acronym is REAL-ish. So it's um, <laughs> smart communities are REAL-ish. And it's an acronym, obviously. So we've got resourceful and connected. So that's the R. So this is about using resources more efficiently and effectively. And that's both from environment, using our time, using our energy, using um, you know, our human resources and um, using our technology resources. Efficiently is, is part of it, but effectively is the other part and, and I guess responsibly and realising that we don't have to put technology in everything, um, but we need to use it in, um, use the best resources that we have available. And then connected in that is about um, the basic level of foundational connection. And that's um, both from a human perspective, so that social fabric, and a basic level of internet connection. So then we can actually, you know, start to have some of these conversations that we that we want to be having remotely um, so people can actually access, uh, you know, the global market um, from their own home or whatever, if they're um, living in a, in a rural or remote area, what is that basic level of foundational connection? And then, um, you know, that's kind of a fibre internet um, conversation. But then what are the other, I guess, mechanisms that we can connect? You know, we don't necessarily need to have 5G or whatever to 
send smaller packets of data back and forth, maybe like a flood monitoring system um, or, you know, our smart bins and all those type of things. So what is the level of connection that we actually need um, to suit the application? Um, and some of it, sometimes it might be, you know, we need that a low latency, high speed um, connection, but then in other areas where um, it's, it, we only need a different, you know, we need something different. So making sure that we're tailoring that and not just, um, it's not a blanket approach, I suppose. So that's uh, resourceful and connected. So that's the R. The next one is the E, which is empowered and informed. So this is about citizens. Um, we feel empowered um, that we can actually make a difference in decision making and that we continue to be informed. We inform ourselves, but also regulation allows us to be informed as well, which is really, that's, that's the, the key point. That's that point we were making before about people want choices if they're allowed to make choices and if they're informed to yes. make the choices. Yes. And then, yeah, how the government setting the rules at play. So then when we're asking, maybe we're not asking government for this information, we're asking a, a large tech company, a private company, how, what protections, even though they're a private company, what protections are in place if we're using them for a, you know, a service. So that's really important to be um, informed. And Empowered Informed is one of my favourite ones um, because it's about the citizen. I mean, everything's about the citizen, but that one in particular, it's really key. Uh, the next one is the A, which is accessible and inclusive, um, which is fairly self-explanatory, except that, um, you know, it's not super easy. We need to make a conscious decision to make sure that we're physically inclusive and um, digitally inclusive, which is that accessibility piece as well. I need to know how to access something as well. That's part of the accessibility. Um, even if it's, you know, oh, but there's a service available, I need to know that it's accessible. And, um, you know, if I, and if I um, have certain needs in a literacy sense, um, how can I continue to build that uh, and, and making sure that when we are building out these services, we're not um, increasing that divide once again. So accessible and inclusive is really, really important. And accessible is, yeah, the physical, so the basic level of being able to get around um, as well as now we're talking with as things are more and more digitized how do we ensure we don't leave people behind the next one is the l which is livable and well um, so this is all about livability um, making sure we have livable communities and that people's health and well-being is considered when we're making these decisions about technology about new projects um, about smart communities so how can we actually um, and measuring those things as well and you know we did a month on health and well-being and because it kept coming up in conversation and it's something that's really, really important. Um, we can have these communities that are super effective and efficient, but if we're not feeling well and we're not happy and we're not, if we don't feel like we connect to the place, then it's, it's not very useful. The next one is I, which is integrated and open. This is about joined up government services, integrating services with the customer at the center rather than in silos. This is something that the sustainable cities and communities um, uh, standard has, the ISO standard. So this is guidance on establishing smart city operating models for sustainable communities. This talks about how to uh, rearrange government um, services to actually have the customer at the center. And I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoy that standard. And, and reading that standard because it's actually written in a way that's quite um, easy to read and really sets out uh, steps to take to actually come towards, uh, to get towards smart communities. So that was something else um, I've included in this answer with Paul Kerry is that standard. 
Um, and there's lots of guides and things and, and notes about that. So you don't have to read the whole standard per se. But I think that on its own is, is brilliant. There's also a number of other supporting um, ones around that as well um, to set up these smart communities. So I think that's a really important um, tool and um, really important resource for um, smart cities and communities. Uh, so the next one, so we've talked about, yep, uh, integrated and open. So obviously we talked a lot about open before, so I won't go into that any further. The next one is sustainable and circular. So this is very important and sustainable in all senses of the word. Um, so we continue to think about the whole life cycle of our decisions. And obviously that circular economy um, aspect as well, which is, you know, um, is a buzzword, but it has substance. And I think we're, we're starting to focus on this, which is really important. And, you know, I think for regional Australia, this is really key because we can actually open up um, a lot of different, I guess, thinking, but then also revenue streams potentially. Um, and instead of it being waste, it's a resource. So I, I really love this and I'm really excited um, where this will go. Uh, and then the last one, which is the H, is human and diverse. Um, so we need to keep the humans at the centre. So we need to keep it ab about the human experience and the, the human life. Um, and then diversity and this is both engagement in our communities as they become more inclusive and, and more diverse and inclusive. Um, but we also need that multidisciplinary approach and we need the diversity at the boardroom table as well. So not doing things that, you know, the way we've always done them. So, yeah, I think the real-ish, so we've got resourceful and connected, empowered and informed, accessible and inclusive, livable and well integrated and open, sustainable and circular and human and diverse. So I think that's a place to really, um, and I guess diving into those things and then having a conversation that's not just about technology is really key because you can have a checklist of, oh, well, yes, I'm going to have, you know, smart bins and whatever else, but we all know that resources aren't unlimited. And if we don't prioritise those things, we will waste time, money, resources. And it actually can be a damaging effect and not like it, not just a neutral effect, but actually a damaging effect for the smart community space because people get jaded um, because they've made the wrong decision in the past or, you know, they've been sold something that isn't suiting their needs. So I think it's really important to dive deep into these areas first so then we can actually work out what our problems are that we want to be solving because, you know, this smart community thing and the reason we went to smart communities is because it's not necessarily that the objectives or the outcomes are not super different to what um, we're already talking about. Uh, you know, we want more livable communities. We want to be more connected. We want to, um, you know, people just want to have an increased quality of life. But the way we get there is through smart community um, because we can actually do things differently because we haven't got there now because we can't keep doing it the way we've, you know, we've always been doing it. And, you know, it's, we definitely are in, it's the best time to be alive right now, um, as they always say, but we can, no matter where we are, we can always continue to improve. And that's what I really worked out on my Churchill Fellowship was no matter who I spoke to, everyone's like, yep, cool, this is where we're at now. But they realise that, um, sitting on your hands or being complacent won't one it won't get you to the next level but also you'll you can um, very easily go back um, very quickly and we don't want that either yeah 
So those uh, that acronym of realish is uh, as one way to answer Kerry's question about you know what makes a a city smart or community smart. And we will make sure that we put all the links that were on uh, that LinkedIn thread where these questions came through. Um, we'll, I'll also put those links in the show notes for this episode as well, just to make sure. But do go and follow Zoe on LinkedIn because these kind of conversations happen all the time and uh, they're really interesting if I do say so myself. Oh, I have some other links. So um, check out Be Smart City Intelligent Communities Forum. Um, I get a lot of my uh, news from Smart Cities World um, in my inbox. Um, so I like, I like to read those articles. And then I often contact the people that the articles you know, uh, either include or um, the person that has written them because I like to find out even more information. So you're allowed to do that as well. Uh, Smart Cities Dive is another one that I um, have in my inbox. And the Australian Smart Communities Association, obviously, is a key area, particularly for the demand side of smart cities and communities um, to local governments, state governments, um, and people supporting the government as well. Mm. Well, thanks, everybody, for being with us for 150 episodes. We uh, look forward to 150 more, at least. Yes, at least. Um, And I know we didn't get to all the questions, but... um, we, we have them here, so maybe we can answer them um, in, in the new year. I think we should just make this Ask Zoe Anything a more regular segment. <laughs> yes, gets me behind the mic, which is, which is always fun. Turns out you've got a bit to say. Yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. It's been such a great, uh, such a fantastic um, year. Well, two years nearly, um, and I just... Again, I know I keep saying that I can't believe where we're at now, but it's so true. And I think 2020, there's going to be some exciting new developments as well, which um, keep an eye out for. We're having a lot of conversations, um, lots of things bubbling away, which I'm excited to bring you in 2020. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.com community slash podcast if you have any questions for us or any of our guests you can email hello at mysmart.community you can also find us on the socials we are on linkedin and twitter at smartcomhq that's com with two m's if you are enjoying the podcast please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode and we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes, so thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.